when you, you're looking at a transaction, all you're doing is saying, can this transaction be structured in another way where no duty is payable? You are listening to Australia's podcast for accountants, Tax Talks, the podcast to run and grow your firm. Welcome to episode 268 of Tax Talks. This is Heide Robson and thank you to Class for sponsoring this episode. Stamp duty. Well, officially it's called transfer duty, but most of your clients will refer to it as stamp duty. So let's go with stamp duty. Stamp duty is massive. There has been no adjustment to brackets over the past 15 years. So stamp duty bracket creep is massive. It has skyrocketed with the boom in property prices. So minimizing stamp duty can save you a lot of money. But how? This is the question Jeff Steen of Brownwright Steen Lawyers in Sydney will discuss with you in this episode. There are always things in any transaction where you can think about, can this be structured in a way where there's no stamp duty impost? You know, conventionally, you've just got to be very careful about making sure that you do so. And in the olden days, under you know, before 1997 when we had the Stamp Duties Act, then traditionally if you were able to do a transaction without bringing a document into existence, then you didn't pay stamp duty on that transaction. And so over time the revenue authorities got a little bit wise to that and that's where we got these ideas about what was called Clayton's contracts and many listeners probably don't remember the old ads about the drink that you have when you're not having a drink, which was called a Clayton's. And so that there was this concept of having a Clayton's contract, which was a contract you had when you weren't having a contract and you didn't have to pay stamp duty on those. And you also have what we now call the land-rich provisions. And the land-rich provisions have gone through several iterations since 1990 when they were, were first uh, promulgated. So those things are there. Quite often uh, property developers when they're doing joint ventures with clients, will come up with creative ways of structuring a transaction so that they don't have to pay duty. But if you're mum and dad, you know, typically the items that you've listed are going to be generally the ways in which people are going to look at, can I save duty? Number one, first home buyer's exemption scheme. Thing to remember with any any first home buyer scheme or any concession, because the, the concessions change over time. And the governments of the day have tended to use stamp duty as a means of either providing relief or to provide cash assistance to first home-owned buyers. And the critical thing to make sure is that you cannot have owned or co-owned uh, property before you do so. And again, various iterations of this scheme have been state-specific, but the the idea behind the policy is to catch people that haven't ever owned property before. So it now extends quite often to each state in Australia that they might do. And the values are something that you've got to be careful about because sometimes these schemes have been administered on the basis that there's different thresholds for country and city properties. At the moment, certainly the New South Wales assistance scheme contemplates that you can get concessions if you're buying a property that's worth less than a million dollars if it's a new property and it's something less than that if it's an existing property from memory it's about 800,000 but I, I, I don't know exactly where the 
threshold cuts in. For a new home, the thresholds are $800,000 to a million. So up to 800000 you pay no stamp duty. And then up to a million, you receive some discount. And for an existing home, the thresholds are 650000 and 800000 And then for land, the threshold is 400000 to 500000 Yeah, and that's for, for land packages where the building's constructed afterwards. The big trap as well is that you need to show that you are actually going to occupy the property as your main residence. So I have seen people get caught where they've bought the property, they've accessed the concession, and then they haven't actually moved into the property. Or they've bought the property, accessed the concession, and only moved in for three months. And the government isn't too happy to give people this concession if they're not properly taking advantage of it. Yes, so I think the threshold is six months, isn't it? You need to move in within 12 months and then live there for at least six months in New South Wales. The other state might have... Yeah, and six months is generally a good rule of thumb for these types of concessions. And, And the same thing I would say is applicable for capital gains tax. If you're going to say that a property is being used as your main residence for any period of time, you want to say that you've lived in it for at least six months on that basis. Yes. When I first looked at these, I thought they were quite generous. No stamp duty at all if you buy something under 800,000 new or 650,000 established. But then, of course, I realised it really only covers country or outer suburbs or land land packages or apartments. Apartments is where it's designed. And it's actually designed to try and those higher values, the new homes, they're designed to try and attract people to buy apartments. They're designed to help the building developers sell apartments. A lot of apartments would be designed in a way that they cost less than 800000 uh, Yeah, I think that the, um, the developers typically have a very keen eye on what the market will bear and they will be conscious that 800000 is a price point because they know that if someone's buying it less than $800,000, they get a full duty uh, transfer so that it's... Um, it's certainly advantageous to make sure that they've got a selling price that, that meets that market. So that's the um, first home buyers assistance scheme. So that's the first way to yeah. save and, on and, stamp duty. And Heidi, it's just worth saying that check all the time because the rules change regularly because governments use this type of scheme as a means of promoting the building industry or, or holding back for a little bit. So whenever the government gets concerned about, a government gets concerned about the first homeowner buyers and first homes being unaffordable, they roll this out or they might improve it in some way. So it's it's not something which is a set and forget. Number two, death. Correct me if I'm wrong, I think the next way to save on stamp duty is to basically pass land on through a will. But you don't want to die to have to do yes, it. So. Yes, yes, I know, of course, I know. But Am I right that when you pass land on through a will, there is no stamp duty, correct? Correct. And certainly into family arrangements, it's quite common to have arrangements where the properties will pass through a will. And then is it possible to make a binding will that the uh, will maker can't change later on? This is a really complex question. And the short answer is no. The longer answer is it is possible to enter into a contract to make a will where there might be damages that flow or the contract may in fact be enforceable. It's a complex question that you've asked, which is, uh, is it possible to make a will binding? And the reason why it's complex is the short answer is no. A person that makes a will can revoke their will. A person that makes a will, if that person marries or remarries, might also revoke the will by statute. 
So, but it is possible to enter into a contract where the contract for consideration has a provision that says, I will provide services to you in exchange for you gifting me in your will a particular property. That contract is theoretically enforceable, provided the conditions around equitable principles are satisfied. But the the idea is that if there has been an inconsistent will that has been made, then the counterparty to that contract may have a claim in damages against the estate. It doesn't necessarily follow that the property will in fact go to the contracted beneficiary. But it could also be that the nature of the contract that's done is that the property is in fact held on a prior trust for the contract beneficiary and therefore that trust claim will defeat the claim of the person in a subsequent inconsistent will. Now that's a lot of language to discuss to, to discuss a concept but that's because the concept is quite complex when you get into it. What I was basically after was whether one could use the fact that a will doesn't trigger stamp duty, whether one could use that. And I was thinking of whether I could make a gift unrelated to the will, but then have some have a binding will somehow that then means the property is transferred. So let's say we have a property of one million that Bob owns and Sally makes a gift of Bob to one million for nothing in return. It's a gift, but then Bob will bequeath the property to Sally through his will. But it's not actually going to get you there. And the reason it's not going to get you there is because the gift will not form consideration. So in order to have a contract that is going to be in any way enforceable as a contract, there has to be consideration that moves and, and a gift of money is not. The example that's probably most commonly used is something like this. Dad, I will continue to work on the farm provided you will the farm to me. And is that enforceable? That is will be an enforceable contract. And that will not trigger stamp duty. I mean, safe of the family farm exemption anyway, we probably have an exemption anyway through the family farm exemption. Let's use a business as an example. Yeah. Would that then be enforceable and would not trigger stamp duty on the business property? Yeah, that's correct. It wouldn't do that. The contract is only to make a will. It's not to transfer the property. And you've got all sorts of competing interests. So again, what you've got to look at is, yes, will it work for stamp duty if everybody's friendly, the, the problem is what happens when there's a challenge? So will it hold up if somebody challenges it? So yes, if everybody's friendly, yes, you can use this and no stamp duty will be paid when the property is ultimately inherited. But when, let's say, second spouse comes along and, and wants to do something that's different to what was in the original contract, then all you're stuck with is there has been a breach of contract. So you've either got to prove that the property is held on a trust of some form because you've paid consideration for it or that it is an enforceable contract and damages flow from the breach of that contract, enforceable against the estate. Okay, good. So to safe stamp duty in connection with a will, you really need to bring a, a trust into the mix and then do some clever structuring. Yeah, it's not a trust as we would typically understand it. It's a trust that arises because of the contractual relationship. And there's one okay. other point, Heidi, that just while we're on this, which is not a stamp duty point, but sometimes 
when you've got losses, lost companies, and you've got more than one family that's involved, and you want to make sure that the losses are preserved and that the con- continuity of ownership test is satisfied, you might have a contract that arranges for families to pass shares or a certain proportion of the shares under a will so that it doesn't trigger a problem under the continuity of ownership test. Oh, I see. So if I sell shares, then I have a problem with the continuity of ownership test, meaning I might not be able to claim the losses. But if the shares pass to a new shareholder under a will, then the continuity of ownership test will be satisfied because the new owner will step into the shoes of the old owner? Exactly. Okay. So it's basically like the scenario we had with pre-CGT assets in a company. Very similar to that. Okay, good. So that was the second scenario, death. Yep. The third scenario is the family farm exemption. Number three, family farm exemption. And that basically means that a farmer can pass the land onto his children or relatives. Yes. And can sell it. So it doesn't have to be as a gift or a, a will. It doesn't have to go through the will, but he can sell beforehand to fund his retirement. But that won't trigger stamp duty as long as the person who buys the farm is a part of, of his family group, which includes children, stepchildren, brothers, sisters, brother-in-law, sister-in-laws, nieces and nephews, and spouses. Again, each, each state, Heidi, each state is different. So... You've got to be careful about complying with the stamp duty law of the state in which the property is located. But yeah, the, the principle is correct. That, that is that a the the idea is that the next generation can acquire the asset from the previous generation for consideration so that the, you know, as you say, the, the farmer, because these were designed for farmers, but the farmer can can retire and the next generation has certainty immediately that they control the farming asset without it having to go through through the will. And so this is quite concessional because when you sell the farm, you might get the entire capital gain tax-free through the small business CGT concessions and the 15-year exemption. And then you don't even have to pay stamp duty on the passing on of the land. And you don't even have to die, unlike the one before. Yes, we exactly. About, you know, exactly. <laughs> Exactly. To the best of your knowledge, does every state and territory have the family farm exemption? Yes. New South Wales, um, Queensland and Tasmania have it. Yeah. And Victoria has one as well. Although mm-hmm. Victoria, to access the Victorian one is a lot narrower. I have to say, I'm, I'm confident that Western Australia and South Australia do have one. Uh, again, not dealing with, you know, being from New South Wales and being parochial, don't deal with Western Australia and South Australia intergenerational transactions to to be on top of that. Yes, no, that's all right. And then I understand that it can get complicated when the farm is sitting in a trust or in a company. So then Correct. it depends and, and very much on who has the shares, etc. Precisely. And also that, again, I think in Victoria there are more problems in accessing the concessions when you're buying. If you buy the shares in the company, you may have more difficulty. Good. So the devil is in the details. As always. And again, this is, this is one area. It's, it's a little bit like the coronavirus rules. You know, each state has different rules. Okay. So that was the third way you might be able to reduce stamp duty, the family farm exemption. Number four, funny business. 
And so now the fourth way is what I call funny business. And it started with an article I read in the Sydney Morning Herald Sun yes. about a family who had lost a court case and had to move out of their rental home. And one thing that triggered it was that the family actually had an option contract to buy the house. And then the relationship soured and the family wanted to buy the house, but the landlord didn't want to sell anymore. And it was a paragraph further down in the article that caught my attention and that made me stop and wonder. And it spoke about the fact that the landlord had become a consultant to the tenant's company at the start of the lease. And then there were consultancy fees of $1.4 million over those five years. And then when the relationship soured, there was an argument that the consultancy fees were actually occupancy payments in the first place to already start paying on this option contract. And so it just sounded all very strange. And it made me think about possible ways to do funny business to try to reduce stamp duty. And if you redefined part of the purchase price as consultancy fees, you would reduce the sales price of the property, hence reduce your stamp duty. And on 1.4 million, that's roughly $100,000, you reduce it by. So that would benefit you because if it's your main residence, the lower cost base doesn't affect you. But then, of course, it means that the seller has accessible income. And, and so it really only makes sense for the seller if they have an income tax loss carry forward. Yeah, there's two parts to it, Heidi. So part number one is why would they have done it this way? And I, I suspect, as you suspect, that this is to do with somebody trying to get an income tax saving rather than a stamp duty saving, because it doesn't make sense unless there are uh, losses in place. Or it could also have simply been that in the course of heated litigation about something that allegations were thrown around as to what money was actually paid for. And obviously, one suspects that there was a falling out among friends. So people who were formerly friends and, and uh, were no longer um, seeing eye to eye. But so the thing to remember from a stamp duty perspective is that stamp duty is payable on the greater of the amount that the parties have agreed to pay or the market value of the property. And when you've got funny business where somebody's trying to discount the face value of the property, yes, it may be that they're able to pass it through the commissioner because the commissioner is not going to call for a valuation of each property and will assume that people are dealing with it each other at arm's length. But when it gets investigated or something like this happens, the commissioner can still go back to these people and say, hey, I found out about this in the paper. You've obviously done some dodgy deal to try and record a lower value on the property. Presumably that was to obtain a stamp duty saving and I am going to determine the market value of that property at the time that the contract was entered into and assess you for duty on the higher of the valuation or the contract price. So from a stamp duty perspective, again, in theory, there shouldn't be any saving. In practice, people who indulge in this are trying to take advantage of the fact that the commissioner doesn't enforce the law and doesn't have the resources to enforce the law fully. And yet my yeah. warning about dealing with people who, you know, 
sometimes you need to count your own fingers when you deal with people who are prepared to indulge in shady practices. But also when it comes to market value, Jeff, I'm pretty sure that if you ask five real estate agents to value a house, you get five different market values. That's true, Heidi, but, but don't forget, the commissioner here is going to draw an inference that says your deal here is, as you know, set out in the court documents was that you've tried to save a $1.43 million on the price, on the head price. So I think what's really going on as an arm's length value is it's the contract price plus $1.43 million. And the commissioner will get some support for that. Yes. No, no, I completely agree with you that in this case where it's now all in the court documents, more difficult to hide, but it's more just that this was an attempt. We don't know whether that was actually the, the, the intention, but just in theory, in, in a similar case, there could have been an attempt to save stamp duty by redefining part of the purchase price as consultancy fees. But you said something before, and you said that this wasn't so much a stamp duty saving, but an income tax saving. But I can't see where the income tax... The income tax saving will only happen if the vendor has losses. If he has losses and if the house wasn't his main residence and so he would have been up for capital gains tax because he wouldn't have been able to yep. claim the six-year yes. absence rule. So if yep. it had been an, an investment property and there would have been a substantial capital gain, yes, I agree. Then, And there had been tax losses that otherwise he wouldn't have been able to claim. Then uh, yes. So it might be an arbitrage position. So the arbitrage position might be saying, well, we, the tenant can get a tax deduction for the 1.43 that we're going to pay you and you might only be paying capital gains tax on that at 23 cents instead of 47 cents and between us we will calculate whatever that 1.43 is to have regard to you know compromising on that arbitrage number five separate the fittings and furniture from the house there's one more point. Just, just sorry, yeah. Heidi, while we're talking about. So, if I change the topic a little bit on the the and say, look, what other things might people do in that respect? Another thing that at that high end level, so you know, the eastern suburb sales, um, quite often in some of those mansions, there will be fixtures and fittings that have a good value, and you know, those values could be five hundred thousand, a million dollars, something along those lines, and. Again, fixtures form part of the house, but the fittings don't and the furnishings don't. So it's entirely possible if a husband and wife are buying property that they can structure a transaction where someone buys the land and pays the price for that land and someone enters into a separate contract which is not interdependent to buy some of the fittings items. And so and that would then be legal? That would be legal if it's done properly. If it's done on an interdependent basis, then... The commissioner's quite entitled to say, no, that's all part of the one transaction and I'm going to assess you for duty on the lot of it. But so then that's the weak point, isn't it? Because these transactions would usually be interdependent because there's no point in buying the furniture and fittings if you don't get the house. Usually, but yeah, there are, again, I'm sure that there are a number of clever people that can think of ways to do it legally and still protect the contractual interests of all the concerned. Number six, joint ventures. This is where you've got a joint venture and, and what happens is a person owns land, they may have had the land as their main residence, the developer comes along and says, have I got a deal for you? And the developer says, rather than me pay you the stamp duty for me to build your unit or you know, to buy your, your property from you, I will build the property 
the building on your unit while you still own it. And at the end of the development, I will give you a unit or two units in the completed development. And because you continue to own the property, the developer's not paying stamp duty on taking it out of the owner's name. And the owner's also not paying stamp duty for retaining the two, one or two completed units in the development. And so that's another way where there's a transaction which is in substance, I'm going to sell you the property and buy back a couple of units, which becomes, look, I will manage this development for you. I'll receive a fee for managing that development and that fee, which will be an equivalent price to all of the other units that get sold, will not be subject to stamp duty. Sounds perfectly legal. It is legal. And it, it just, it, because it creates different contractual rights, so the assets are different and, and who um, what you can do with the asset is different. So the, the stamp duties office isn't fussed about those types of arrangements because the developer in that example can't call for the property to be delivered to them. And so no, no duty ends up being payable. But the economic effect gives the result that the profit goes in the directions the parties intend and no duty is payable. Number seven, other ways to save stamp duty. When you, you're looking at a transaction, all you're doing is saying, can this transaction be structured in another way where no duty is payable? Sometimes when you are looking at entities that are land rich, you can look at what is actually happening. So are there transactions where somebody is going to be acquiring an interest in that land rich entity? Do they need to acquire a majority interest? Are there people that need to do the transaction at the same time? So can we stagger the transactions in a way where no duty gets payable? Is it all in substance one transaction or are there several transactions? So looking at things like that can help. There are things where you might be able to do it where you can sever the assets so that you're not selling dutiable property. So some parts of it might be dutiable property, some parts might not be. So that becomes important as well. But these are probably things which are a little bit more bespoke to the transaction that you're dealing with. The ending word is to be careful. Remember, the commissioner has long arms, but if you are careful and you know what the concessions are and you apply those concessions properly, then if the circumstances are there, then they're intended to be taken advantage of and you should do so. Welcome back. So there are ways to save on stamp duty. You just have to be clever about it and keep it legal so it doesn't backfire. We didn't speak about the stamp duty surcharge or officially called the surcharge purchaser duty. We already touched on this in update 24 for discretionary trusts with residential property in New South Wales. But just quickly for now, if you qualify as a foreign person, then you pay an additional stamp duty surcharge of around 7 to 8%, depending on which state the land is in. And the 7 to 8% is based on the purchase price. So significant. So to save stamp duty, make sure that the entity purchasing the land doesn't qualify as a foreign person and hence doesn't have to pay surcharge stamp duty. Before we part, let's just quickly cover a listener question that is not about stamp duty, but still about conveyancing, so still about property. Yeah, so Michael asks, if what happens if you've got a purchaser that is a couple that have bought a property as joint tenants and one of the couple 
dies between the contract date and settlement. And Michael asks, do you need to get probate of the deceased estate of the joint purchaser or can title be transferred directly to the surviving joint purchaser? And unfortunately, it's a lot more problematic because most contracts will have a provision that says if a party to that contract dies, then the other parties can uh, rescind. So in those circumstances, you know, the vendor has a right to rescind the contract because it might be more difficult. But if the other party hasn't rescinded, there are provisions, particularly in New South Wales, for related parties to have a contract that goes, the transfer going directly to the other party. And it also may be, again, in New South Wales, that the transfer has been submitted to the vendor for signature already. Now, I realise I'm speaking from an old-fashioned source because we now use electronic conveyancing, but if all the processes have happened and all that happens is that the transaction proceeds without anybody realising that one of the parties has died, and this can happen, you know, for example, if, if somebody dies the day before the settlement's due, it may very well be that the solicitors are the last people that are informed and that everything's been lined up for the transaction to happen, then what will happen is it will go into joint names and then the surviving person will then produce the death certificate to the land titles office and get the property transmitted to the survivor's name alone. Yes, because at settlement, the purchasers actually don't need to be present and hence the demise of one of the purchasers might not be known to the bank and the solicitors. Correct. And I'll tell you a true story. When I was a very young lawyer, my grandfather was moving into a retirement village and he was buying the retirement village unit from an elderly couple. And my grandfather was of an age where he wanted to keep up with what his friends were doing, so he read the obituary or the death notices regularly. And he rings me one morning about a week before the settlement's due to take place to say, look, I've seen this notice in the paper. It looks like the name of one of the people that's selling the property to me. What should I do? And I, I rang the lawyers for the owners and they didn't know. And then they rang me back the following day and said, yes, thanks for drawing it to their attention. It was, in fact, their client. And we had to cancel the settlement and re-enter into a new contract waiting for the probate to go through so that the uh, survivor could sell the property alone. And we had to make arrangements for my grandfather to move into the property in the meantime. It was all quite complex and traumatic, particularly as a relative. And, and the, the lesson for young practitioners try and avoid acting for relatives. You only get the blame when things go wrong. Not that I got the blame for it, I, but, but yes. everything very stressful, yes. yeah. Yes. But what happens if a settlement is cancelled like that or when a contract is rescinded, no stamp duty applies, nothing happens? No stamp duty applies. The, the contract is not in existence and the parties have to enter into a new contract if they still want to do the deal. Okay, so it's as if the contract had never existed. Exactly. Welcome back. In the next episode, episode 269, James True of Legal Vision will talk about the distinction of interns from employees. From what point onwards does an intern turn into an employee? And this is relevant for you when you have an intern working in your accounting practice, but it is also relevant when you do the payroll for your clients and suddenly an intern pops up. So 
Let's cover that next time. Thank you for listening and thank you to class for their support. Bye for now and see you in the next episode.